You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. show of hands, um, how many of you have ever at some point in your life collected something? Could be anything. I've been a collector of some kind. That's impressive. Um, so the research says that it's estimated that 40% of Americans collect one thing or another. And people collect everything, man. People collect sneakers. People collect toys. They collect movie and TV memorabilia. People collect comic books and cards. You can literally collect anything. It would be fun to go around and find the weirdest thing <laughs> that one of us collects, but alas, we don't have time for that. What I will say is I am definitely not a collector. Uh, the only time, I think the closest I've ever come is this small collection of sports cards that I had when I was a kid, as many people did. And to be honest, I just never really understood the appeal. Clearly, there is tremendous appeal. And there's a lot of theory as to what it is that resonates with us when it comes to collecting things. But for me, I've just never really been able to understand it. Like, I even remember when I was a kid and having friends who collected toys. And I, I remember going over to their houses and they would have, like, for instance, all of these action figures that were still in the boxes. And I just remember going into that as a kid being like, this is like being in a toy store. Like, you can look at it, but you can't touch it. And so even as a young child, I just sat there confused by this, thinking, man, toys are meant to be played with. Comic books are meant to be read. Sneakers are meant to be worn. And so why do you just leave it in the box? I never was able to understand that. Now, obviously, there is absolutely nothing wrong with collecting as a hobby or as a profession. Some people have turned it into a very lucrative career. If it brings you enjoyment, and it does not put you in like crushing debt, I would say, go for it. Don't invite me over to see your toy collection if we don't get to play with it, but you do you. Now that being said, here's something I would say is a problem. And I would say is a common and a sizable one at that. It's what I would call collector Christianity. Collector Christianity collects theology. It collects insight. It collects spiritual experience but never takes it out of the proverbial box to actually use it. So collector Christianity is marked by the kind of unapplied knowledge that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.1 says puffs up. Now the antithesis of this collector Christianity is what I would call applied Christianity. So where collector Christianity is content to just sort of stand back and admire our faith from a safe distance, applied Christianity takes seriously... Scripture's constant call to partner with the Holy Spirit and to actually shape one's life around what it and he has to say. I'll give you a few examples, just so you don't have to take my word for it. Speaking of his own teaching in John 13, 17, listen to what Jesus said. He said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you what? Do them. I put it on the screen. You didn't have to guess. You literally just had to read along with me. He said, blessed are you if you do them. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2.13, I'm not going to make you do that again. Don't worry. If you're like, oh God, here we go again. I'm just going to allow you to sit and read silently. Romans 2.13, Paul writes, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
James reminds us <coughs> about the importance of faith that produces work in us in James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He said, but some, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He goes on to say, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. In 1 John 3.18, John plainly writes, Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. And so here's my point in this. A faith that is not applied is actually denied. A faith that is not applied is actually denied. So collect your Christianity in its lack of action taken in response to what is commanded, denies the very words that it seeks to collect. And so in our text this morning, Jesus is going to tell us another story. It's a story illustrating the danger of this collector Christianity, of failing to actually take his words out of the box and to use them. And so here's the big idea that we're going to see come out of this story together. If you like to write things down, make a note of this. Obedient action is the wise response to the words of Jesus. Obedient action is the wise response to the words of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. If you're old school like me and you have an actual Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. It's all going to be on the screen. Uh, But we're going to look at the story of two builders Okay, the story of two builders, it starts in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and let me just read this story to you because it's not a very long one. Jesus says this, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and notice this, and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So this story comes at the tail end, if you're not familiar with Matthew's gospel, it comes at the tail end of what is probably the most comprehensive section of Jesus' teaching in the entire New Testament. This story ends what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. And so after three full chapters, 111 verses of Jesus painting picture after picture after picture of how to experience the flourishing life in the kingdom of God that we were designed for, it's like he says, all right, just one more thing. We have covered a lot of ground and it is all for nothing if you miss this point. Obedient action is the wise response to these words that you've been listening to. Now, technically speaking, this parable is called an antithetical double similitude. You like how that just rolls off your tongue? I just wanted to put that out there because if it comes up this week, you're going to be so embarrassed if you do not know what type of technical parable this was. Now, more simply, it's a type of... uh, You wouldn't believe how many times I had to practice even saying that. So... It's a type of story that makes its point through contrast. So this was a very common oratory form in Jesus' day. It's called two-way teaching. And so Jesus makes a contrast between these two men who are building a house. One of the men is cast as a wise builder. The other one is cast as a foolish builder. 
Now, <clears throat> the dangerous and destructive, all of this centers around a storm coming and hitting these two homes, and this very dangerous and destructive potential of rain and flooding was well known to Jesus' listeners. Um, the wet season in Palestine extends from October to March, and most of the rain comes in just one month. It comes in the month of January. Now, what's interesting is, do you know that both Jerusalem and London, which I, we would probably traditionally think of as a pretty wet environment, now, both Jerusalem and London get about 22 inches of rain every year. But whereas London has 300 days of rain, Jerusalem only gets 50. So what that means is they get the exact same amount, but Jerusalem gets hit hard and it gets hit fast, and it causes an immense amount of damage due to runoff and flooding. And so Jesus here is intentionally using a degree of absurdity while telling this story in order to drive his point home. Because as these people are sitting and listening, and they hear about someone building their house on a firm foundation, they would have been like, yeah, check, that, that makes absolute sense. But then when Jesus turns the corner and he describes a person building their home on sand, the listening crowd would have thought, like, who would do that? Like, who, who would be so foolish to think that they should build their house on sand when we all know we live in a region known for flash flooding? And that's the exact response that Jesus hopes to incite. He wants them to look at these two things and go, well, this one makes total sense. This one is all kinds of dumb. That's the response he's trying to incite. The entire point is that no one would ever do that because it's so foolish. And so Jesus' point is to say, just like it's foolish to build your home on a foundation that is destined to fail, it is even more foolish to build one's life even one's eternity on a foundation that promises to fail. And so let's press into that just a little bit more deeply. Notice how this story really ultimately pictures two types of people. It's not really about building. It's about two different kinds of people. And both of these groups share something in common, and then there is something that is distinct about them. What both groups share in common is that they both hear the words of Jesus. Where they differ is in their response. They differ in what they actually do with what they've heard. So Jesus says that the wise person hears his words and takes action against them, responds to them, does something with what has been said. But the foolish person hears the same words, but they don't act. They hear it, they just don't do anything with it. And so I think what it really is, is it's a story about collector Christianity versus applied Christianity. The former, Jesus would call foolishness. The latter, he would label as wise. Now, because of the prominence in Jesus' story, we'd be remiss not to spend just a moment thinking together about wisdom. Because wisdom is a very normative word in our culture, but oftentimes the way that Jesus would have thought about wisdom and what we think wisdom to be are very, very different. And what I mean by that is often in our culture, we equate wisdom with intellect. So we think that to be wise is the same thing as being intelligent, or to be wise is to be smart. And in that sense, we are at danger of understanding wisdom as just nothing more than the acquisition of knowledge, or the acquisition of experience. And this is why in our culture we tend to fall prey to the fallacy that wisdom comes with age. I'm here to tell you that age can be a source of wisdom, but it in no way guarantees it. The only thing age actually guarantees us is more experience. 
though the 55-year-old individual has more life experience than the 15-year-old individual. So experience or age guarantees more experience, but it does not necessitate more wisdom. You can be a young fool, and we've all met some old fools. Now, I remember being a brand new pastor. I was 25, and I remember seeing this in such a pointed way. I will never forget this day. I saw this in such a pointed way in one day. One particular morning, I had uh, an appointment with a young guy in our church. I think if I remember correctly, he was like 17, 18 years old. And he came in to talk to me about a relationship that he was in with a girl, and it was, big surprise, not going super well. Now, the longer I listened to him and everything that he was describing and everything that was happening, the more evident it became this relationship was not going well because he was acting and behaving like a selfish 17-year-old boy. Now, that's not super surprising. (laughs) I remember being a selfish 17-year-old boy. This is very, very understandable. You're still maturing. You're hopefully doing the hard work of figuring out, like, how do I transition from being a child to being an adult? But here's the thing. Later that afternoon, I had a second appointment. This time, it was with a 55-year-old man who also happened to come in and talk about a relationship that he was in with a woman that was not going well. Now, the problem is, the longer that I listened to him and the more I heard him describe what was happening, the more evident it became that this relationship was not going well because he was acting like a selfish 17-year-old boy. (laughs) So the first one makes sense. The second one, I just remember walking away going, Dear Jesus, how do I not become this guy? (laughs) So my point in this is to say, age never guarantees wisdom because wisdom is about more than mere experience. It's about more than mere intellectual knowledge. And this is why Jesus ties wisdom with action in these verses. And so let's define biblical wisdom. Because the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. The entire book of Proverbs is about gaining wisdom. And Jesus has so much to teach us. This is an example of wisdom literature from Jesus where he's trying to help us understand what does a wise life look like. And so here's the way that I define, personally, wisdom through a biblical lens. Wisdom is taking the most prudent action to produce the most productive outcome in any given situation. Wisdom is taking the most prudent action to produce the most productive outcome in any given situation. So in essence, when the Bible talks about wisdom, what it's talking about is living skillfully. Now, we all know some people, we might even be in this room and feel like, I don't think I live skillfully. I feel like I live like a dumpster fire. My life feels like it's on fire all the time. Some of us might feel that way. We all go through seasons where life feels that way for sure. But some people live an entire life that no one would back up and go, skill. I see lots of skill present in this one's life. And when that is absent, what's absent in that person's life is wisdom. Wisdom is taking the most prudent action to produce the most productive outcome in any given situation. And so Jesus' point in this story is to say that taking the most prudent action to produce the most productive outcome in any given situation, so living skillfully or living wisely, demands acting on his words. We are not left to ourselves to gain wisdom in this life. And that's a gift to us. 
So maybe you grew up even in a home where you didn't have parents that did a really faithful job of nurturing you in how to live skillfully, how to relate. The good news is you're still not alone. You didn't have to have a great dad or a great mom to teach you to live a wise life. We have a good, loving, heavenly father who has written a whole book on how we can actually live flourishing lives. And that's very good news because many of us didn't grow up with a parent or a caregiver that sat with us just determined to spend the first 18 years of our lives teaching us to live skillfully. Many of us as adults are trying to make up for lost time. And this is one reason why we should invite the words of Jesus to saturate our hearts and our minds over and over and over again. But here again is the problem. Oftentimes, we are prone to hear Jesus say something and then walk away without taking the action he invites. Uh, who, who, who all has done that? Everybody, okay? More of us have done that than collect things. Everyone at some point in life hears something that Jesus says and then walks away and doesn't do anything with it. It's one of the really sobering things about teaching the Bible vocationally. As you know, it's a really high probability these people walk away and don't do anything with, <laughs> with what they just heard. Because I know that to be true because that's often my posture as well. I hear Jesus speak every single day, and, and many times I walk away and I just don't do what he said. In fact, I want to highlight for you before we close our time together three things that we tend to do rather than act on Jesus' words, okay? Three things we do rather than act on the words of Jesus. Here's number one. It's admire. Now, these are not bad things, but let me just say at the outset, the problem with them is when we do them in the absence of any action. So the first one is, like, sometimes we just admire. Sometimes we admire something that Jesus says in the same way that we might admire the words or the example of someone like Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa. So we, we, we certainly, like, we might look at that and go, man, that's what Mother Teresa did with her life. I mean, it's objectively amazing, but we're probably not going to follow her example. My guess is not many of us are going to, like, leave this place, book a ticket to India, and give our, <clears throat> give our life to serving the poor in India. So, but we admire her, which again, isn't, isn't in and of itself a bad thing. But similarly, we admire things that Jesus says, like for instance, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some things to say about loving one's enemies. And so we hear that and we're like, I admire that. I admire that Jesus says that we should love and that we should pray for our enemies. Meanwhile, it seems like we struggle to even love those we just disagree with on virtually anything these days. And so we can admire without actually acting on what Jesus says. And Jesus would say to us that admiration without action is foolishness. Now, the second thing that we do rather than act is that we agree. We agree. So we might agree with Jesus, for instance, that we are, as Christians, meant to be the light of the world. Very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the first things that Jesus says about the church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Powerful words of vision that Jesus speaks into the church, and we hear that and we go, yes, I agree. But oftentimes, we're real reluctant to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And we're hesitant to be open about our faith. And we're hesitant to pray for a person or maybe to invite someone to come to church. And I don't mean to say that in any sort of shaming way, 
but just in an honest way. Like, we're not a church that's going to pretend that we're different than we are. We suck at some stuff. Amen? I'm, like, teeing you guys up for amens and everything. I'm putting the, the words on the screen. I just feel so lonely up here sometimes. Work with me. Sometimes we miss the mark on things. Amen. Thank you. So <laughs> I've just given up. I, someone told me last week, really loved your sermon. If I was the amening kind of person, I probably would have amened. And I was like, you know, it's not hard to just say amen every <laughs> once in a while. Thank, thanks for the text to tell me two hours after the fact. So we, we, can, we can agree intellectually, listen to this, we can agree intellectually without acting incarnationally, meaning that we don't actually embody the truths we profess to believe. We just agree with them. And Jesus would say that admiration without action is foolishness. Here's the third thing we do rather than act on the words of Jesus. Number three is we aspire. We aspire. Now, I'm, I'm doing this new at-home training program that's video-based. And so every one of these workouts has three people that are demonstrating three different levels of the same movement. So in every workout video, there's a person doing the beginner movement. There, there's someone doing the intermediate version of that workout, and then there's someone doing the advanced version of the movement. And so as you, you would expect, they get progressively harder, as their names imply. And there's been a few of these workouts where I'm, I'm like watching the, the person doing the advanced, and I think, hopefully someday, but today's not that day, okay? <laughs> I, you're doing a great job. I aspire to be able to move my body in the way that you are, but I'm going to lay here right now, okay? <laughs> but maybe someday. So I aspire to it but I'm not there. And sometimes, sometimes we do the same thing with the commands of Christ. So we hear the words of Jesus, and then we have this way, maybe even unconsciously, I can't imagine anyone's like done this in their journal, but, but we hear the words of Jesus and we rank them according to difficulty. So there are like some beginner commands from Jesus. Jesus calls us to pray, for instance. And we think, all right, well, that feels a little weird talking to a God that I can't see, but, but I'll, I, I can do my best to, to talk to God here and there. But then Jesus has some intermediate commands, and he invites us to not judge. I got to tell you, that's not going great for me. And that one's a little bit harder. <clears throat> but, I, but I feel like, well, I, I can work at it. I can, I can do my best with that. And then there are some commands that are that what we would call the advanced ones. Like, for instance, Jesus calls us to forgive people. And we think, maybe someday, Jesus, but today ain't that day. Forgiveness is for, like, the super-Christians. It's for the seals of our faith. <laughs> and I am just not there yet. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to Christ's commands, there aren't categories. There is simply the way of Jesus that we are invited, by God's grace, with the Spirit's help, to live into as he invites us. That's it. And so Jesus would say that aspiration without action is still foolishness. Obedient action is the wise response to the words of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear a critical question implied at the end of this story. So I imagine here at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this sea of people sitting in front of him, he has been teaching them, and as we've talked about, like we know from the text, even like if you look at the way 
that these two verses end. It won't be on the screen, but it says in verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, which is why I choose to believe that you don't amen when I preach, because you're just like, wow, inside, <laughs> right? So listen, the people are astonished because his teaching, he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes, which is such a cold burn on these poor scribes. They're like, well, this guy's actually good. So I just imagine the sea of people sitting and listening to Jesus, and they have heard so much stuff that Jesus has to say. And then they are left after this story with a very pointed question. This is the question. What am I going to do with what I just heard Jesus say? That's why he puts it here. Because I don't think that Jesus really cared about being an astonishing teacher. I don't think Jesus cares about being impressive. The entirety of Jesus' ministry is about helping us be formed in his image. And so he puts this question before us, what will we do with what he says? This is Jesus, with as much urgency as possible, pleading with us to act on what he says. Now, in the weeks to come, Jesus is going to put some very difficult invitations in front of us. This is a difficult invitation to actually do something rather than just sit and listen and consume and collect. It's a difficult invitation, but I just want to set you up for the fact that there are more coming. Things like sacrificial service. Things like unconditional forgiveness. Things like persistence in prayer when it's not easy. Things like deep trust, just to name a few. And so I, I want you to imagine Jesus right now at the outset of this. And so I want to invite you, if you are comfortable and if you would, to just close your eyes again for a moment. And just invite the Holy Spirit to give you an image or a sense of his presence with you right now. Maybe you'll even see a picture of Jesus standing in front of you in your imagination. So just capture that for a second. Imagine Jesus right now at the outset of these few weeks that we're going to spend with these stories, asking you ahead of time, what are you going to do with what I'm about to say to you? Not in a judgmental, condemning way. See a smile on his face and compassion in his eyes. He is for you. He isn't just bent on you obeying his rules because he just needs everyone to do everything that he says. He looks at you with concern and compassion because he wants you to flourish. He wants you to heal. He wants you to experience the abundant life for which he came to make accessible to you. And so he stands in front of you. He looks you in the eyes and he says, what will you do with what I have to say to you? Are you going to just leave it in the box? going to collect more knowledge, collect more insight? Will you only admire my words? Will you only agree with my words? Will you only aspire to maybe someday embody my words? Or will you seize the grace I am offering you? And will you act on them? You can open your eyes. I want you to just imagine for a second what could happen 
if we make this decision right now, that we're going to just, by faith, do what Jesus invites us to do. Think about what could happen if we act on everything he puts before us. We would know him more deeply, for sure. We would be transformed individually. We would be built up collectively. All of that is accessible to us. If we are willing to take him by the hand and ask his Holy Spirit to help us say yes to everything that he invites. Obedient action is the wise response to the words of Jesus. So let's choose wisdom and act. Will you pray with me? Jesus, saying yes to you, I just thank you, Lord, at the outset that you, are, you already know this, but it's, it's hard to trust you. There are so many things that are so deeply ingrained in us, in our minds, in the way that we think, in our hearts, in the way that we feel, in our bodies, the way that we behave and respond in life. There are so many things so deeply ingrained that when we hear you invite us to something that is entirely different, it is scary, it is hard, it requires us to let go of things that we have learned to love, even though they may not be good for us. And so I thank you that you don't callously put these invitations in front of us. You know all this. You know how hard it is. Which is why you say, I'm, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You will never be alone. And you have given us the gift of your own Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to give us the strength and the power to live up and into the lives that you created us for. But it is hard nonetheless. So we ask you for humility, we ask you for courage, and we ask you for strength. Lord, would you help us to build lives marked by wisdom, lives that act on the words that you speak to us. We cannot do it on our own, and so we ask you for help.